light as we hear, as we, as we listen, as we receive, as we believe, as we obey, it will bring deliverance. We wait at your feet, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If we, if you were there and if you're following the teaching, either in the church or through the net, you will know we've been looking at the, the importance of doctrine. Of course, last Sunday was Mother's Day, but actually every day is Mother's Day. If mothers were in there, we would have no day. <laughs> so, but, uh, no. When we use the term doctrine, the importance of doctrine, why? There are different ways you can look at it. Doctrine is the ways of God, how God functions. It is how the righteousness of God is established in us. And we have to learn and know the ways of God, otherwise we will never grow in the kingdom. When Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it is through the doctrine. That's why when the church started in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, scripture records, they gathered daily for the apostles' doctrine. See, we all have doctrine. Because as a man thinks, he is. What you think? Everybody has different patterns of thinking. So it's not that anybody, is there is anybody here without a doctrine. Even the little kids have doctrine. Everybody has doctrine. But we are talking about doctrine that is of God. Primarily, your doctrine will shape your life. Remember that. Your doctrine, what you believe, will ultimately shape your life. Primarily, there are three kinds of doctrine. In Mark 7 and verse 7, In vain they worship me, Jesus says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, there is this doctrines of men, but which are of which are basically the rules of man. And they're taught as doctrines, which has no power in eternity, which has no power in the spiritual realm. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul writing to Timothy, the Holy Spirit to us says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So there are doctrines of men, there are doctrines of demons, And in John 7, verse 16 and 17, Jesus says this. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. So there is this doctrine of God. And Jesus, when he brings this doctrine and teaches this doctrine, he declares, the doctrine I bring to you. He doesn't say doctrines. He says doctrine, doctrines of men, doctrines of demons, multiple, but doctrine of God. He says, it's not mine but his who who sent me. And he uses, uh, in law, legal terms, we use a term called caveat. Okay, he uses a caveat, says, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning that doctrine. When it comes to God's doctrine, it is hidden or it is locked from us. The only way I can grow in the doctrine of God is by surrendering my will to do his will. Otherwise, that doctrine will be blocked from me. Anyone? So it begins with that. That's why if you look at anything that Jesus teaches, he'll always bring us back to that. He says, this is how you need to pray. Thy will be done. 
thy will be done. So he says, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. The other way he is saying that when I will myself to do God's will, doctrine in the Bible will start becoming very clear. And he will realize what I am seeing is not the doctrine of man. It's not the doctrine the doctrines of men. It is not the doctrines of the demons. This is the doctrine of Christ, which alone has the power to set us free and to establish us in righteousness. Remember, it's number three that is that saves us, but it is conditional. So doing a quick recap, because we not need to understand why is that we as a church. Remember today is the 25th day of uh, our fasting, 40-day fasting, before we complete 10 years. And the evening devotions which I send to you, uh, save it in your folder. They're in, incredibly intense of genuine, unbelievable men of God who searched, who sought the ways of God. And you will realize the depth of like today's, if you read it, today's is, I mean, it's just not the doctrine, the understanding of God, the language, how they've all put it together and the, the depths of God these men have experienced. And we look at and we should be hungry. Lord, I need to know you. At least some Part of this way these ancient fathers of the church have known. So remember, we are in that process and we as a church have put so much of our time, our energy, our resources in teaching the word. Why? Because why did the apostles focus on doctrine first in the church when it began establishing in doctrine? So to the church leadership, this is what God says in First Timothy chapter, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them. To the church leadership, God says, take heed to yourself. Watch out for the doctrine you believe and you teach and continue in them. Doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. He says, the ultimate salvation, there's a beginning of salvation, there's an end of salvation, but that process is ultimately dependent upon the doctrine you teach. So he tells Timothy, be careful, watch the doctrine you teach. And in a church, you can have various offices in the church, different, different responsibilities. And therefore, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17, scripture says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. He says, the eldership of the church can be into various ministry, various ministry, but especially those who teach in word and in doctrine, he says, who labor, it's not a small thing. He says, they need to labor every place I go to meet the pastors, including here, the country where I came. The struggle is to get the pastors to sit down and learn. And every time you go, you realize they have wonderful hearts, but no doctrine. And the churches are built in the last day on extremely shaky foundations, unbelievable shaky foundation, which cannot stand 
the, the storm that is brewing around the world that is coming and it's already here. So scripture talks about those who labor in the word. A man of God, if he has to teach the word for 30 minutes, will have to labor in private for hours together before he can get. Because what God is committing into his hands is the very doctrine of Christ, how God operates, how his kingdom operates. And men of God, servants of God cannot take it lightly. It's a very, very serious thing because salvation is connected to that. And we will realize when we are sloppy about doctrine, all the other things in our lives start falling apart. In Titus 2.7, to, to this scripture says, yeah, what, no, no, the next one I gave you, is that Titus 2.7? Yeah. In all things, showing yourself be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. We looked at that on a Sunday in depth, but I'm talking about what, recapping on what doctrine means in the church. And to the church, to the church as a whole, in Titus 2.1, scripture says, but as for you, speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. So scripture will say how doctrine affects your role as a man, as an older man, as a younger man, an older woman, as a younger woman, and as employees and employers. Doctrine touches every facet of our life and our life has to match with the doctrine for the power of the kingdom to come into our lives. We cannot blame God for not releasing his power because scripture says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. But for that power to be released, we need to match our lives to his doctrine and not to twist doctrine to match our lives. That's what they do. False prophets, that's what they do. And Apostle John, probably not Paul, actually it's Apostle John who has the toughest words concerning doctrine to write in the new covenant. He says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. It's an incredibly powerful statement. He says, you can talk as much as you want about God, but if you don't have the doctrine of Christ, you don't have God. You cannot separate God from his doctrine. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. And he's the gentlest, the most gentle among the apostles. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. He says that evil deeds are actually a result of evil doctrines and evil thinking. Before a man does anything, he thinks. Nothing is random. So our thinking is actually defined by what we believe and what doctrine we have received. That's why we gather constantly to understand what doctrine is. What is the doctrine of Christ? That is why the warning in James chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Because primarily teaching in the kingdom of God in the church is a teaching of doctrine. And he says, let not many of you be teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. If we all stumble in many things, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. He says, the man who speaks, if he speaks according to the doctrine of Christ. That's what he actually means over there. He can change the course of his life. 
Now, when scripture is talking about many of you becoming teachers, it's not talking about it. Okay, If you opt for a profession to be a teacher in a school, college, go ahead. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the teaching in the kingdom of God. Many of you should not. Okay, Two things have to be noted about teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, God has appointed these in the church first. Apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. And you will realize one, two, and three, all of them teach. He hasn't used the word pastors here because every pastor is meant to be a teacher. That's his one of his primary calling. So it's, it is God. It's not the government. It is not writing an exam. It is God who appoints. The appointment is from God. It's an appointment from God itself. So God says, don't take that profession lightly. You should be very sure. God has called you to be a teacher or a pastor or an apostle or a prophet so that you're bringing correctly or correcting doctrine or teaching doctrine. When it comes to Ephesians 4, when scripture Jesus talks and Paul talks about Jesus, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. This is talking about when Jesus rose from the dead. He gave gifts to men. What were the gifts that Jesus gave to men? The next verses will say, he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, and some to be teachers. So this fivefold ministry, core of it is teaching the word of God. They, they have to have the word, otherwise you cannot function in this ministry. This is a gift appointed by God and a gift from Jesus to the church. So the problem today is the enemy and the world, through the world, has filled the airwaves with teachers. Teachers, filled with teachers. And because, let's be honest about it, God's people, we are not talking about the world, God's people, Christians, are biblically illiterate. They are incredibly qualified in the world, but they are biblically illiterate. They do not have the discernment to spot error. They do not have the discernment to spot error. Opinions, not backed by scripture, is passed on as doctrine to emotionally charged people. I'm not mentioning names, but you know names. They're incredibly powerful speakers. They're very powerful speakers. See, eloquence is not a curse. It's not wrong. But eloquence of a speaker should not be a substitute for sound doctrine. Substitute for sound doctrine. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will say about himself in chapter 2, he will say, For I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. This is the man who wrote one third of the New Testament. He says, when I came to preach, this is how I came. Because I knew what I was handling was the very word of God, the doctrine of Christ. And I should not err in this. 
And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. I didn't try to use human wisdom to convince you to follow my way of thinking, he said. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Okay, this is this this is what every preacher should be. He should handle this with fear and then with trembling, because what he teaches. See, to, if you teach an error, those who have been classroom teachers, you know that if you teach an error, to change it, kids pick up errors much much faster than what is right. The question is, was Paul passionate for Christ? Of course, yes, he was passionate for Christ. But his passion was not a substitute for truth. We should be passionate for Christ. But whenever we speak anything in the name of Jesus Christ, whether even if it is a foreword on a church site, your believer group, be very sure what you're passing across is something that is doctrinally right, not just emotionally surcharged, but doctrinally wrong. It's safer to pass on jokes than doctrine you are not sure of. In Acts chapter 18, verse 20, 24 to 28, I'll show you certain passages from the Bible where you have a man called Apollos here. Okay, A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man. He had eloquence. And he had a, and mighty in scriptures came to Ephesus. He was a very good student, teacher of scriptures. He had eloquence too. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay. Now he is in Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla are there. Okay. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And there were two new believers, not so new. Paul had brought them to the Lord. He had taught them. So actually, in so many ways, they knew better than Apollos. So they called him privately, heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, they explained to him, okay, what you taught is all right. But it is not fully right. And when he decided to cross to Acacia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through the grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. If you look at over there, something is mentioned. Here is a man, mighty in eloquence, very powerful speaker, and is very good at scriptures, and is teaching in a synagogue where there are a couple of believers, and those believers found he's good, but he's not always fully right. And something is mentioned over there. He only knew the baptism of John. Baptism of John. Okay, now let's look to what Paul, when he came to Ephesus, will ask in Acts chapter 19. It happened when Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. They are disciples, okay? He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, this is true for majority of Christians in the world. They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is the Holy Spirit. They said, we are hearing something new here. So then he asked them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. It's the baptism of repentance. 
Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people, they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. Why I bring this over here is, here is a set of people who only knew John's baptism. There is Apollos who only knew John's baptism, and therefore his doctrine is limited. In Christendom, there are different, different experiences of God which will open your eyes to further doctrine. So whenever you, like I said, oh, um, like a uh, big name, let's talk a big name, he's all, the, all over there in the news, Jerusalem embassy was sitting, and he gave the concluding prayer. So you have Pastor John Hagee or any of these big names coming and praying or teaching something. When you look at the label, you will see he's a Baptist. That means he doesn't have this experience, so his doctrine is limited. Your doctrine is limited also by your experience of God. Experience of God. You need to realize doctrine is an ongoing thing because if doctrine is limited, then God is limited because this is the doctrine of God. This is the doctrine of Christ. So you need to understand there are one of the reasons when I teach, especially here Sunday, Wednesday or anywhere, I don't mention names. I don't mention names of who all I read or listen. One of the reasons is 21st century Christians are all emotionally surcharged and very low on on doctrine. And there are multitudes, like in Elijah, Elisha's time, multitudes of false teachers. And they're very powerful, very powerful. Because uh, without eloquence, you cannot succeed as a false teacher. Yet you need to realize, they are not completely false. Nobody will sell a total lie. When they preach or sell something, there is a lot of truth in it. Because that's how they mix their product, the real with the false. But from experience in all these years, personally, when I was growing in the Lord, still growing, I have noted that baby Christians will always reject the truth and accept the error. So many big names today. Big not because of sound doctrine. Big because of eloquence. Delivered in an incredibly surcharged atmosphere. It's like the Karnataka elections. Honestly, if you were to look to the PM's speeches, emotionally surcharged a basket full of lies. Absolute. I mean, cutting through the heart of the nation through the lies. A politician can speak like that, not the prime minister, because he represents you and me. He represents you and me. He represents all of India. So he cannot speak like that. What I am talking about in an emotionally surcharged atmosphere, nobody is looking for doctrine. They're looking for what their emotions wants to hear. That's why you have to be very, very careful. Don't get fooled. Don't get fooled. And one of the reasons I don't, I listen to them. I listen to all these false teachers. Because some of this stuff is, what they teach is incredible. But I won't tell you their names because you will forget all the things you have heard here 10 years. You will go to listen to their junk and receive that error. Because honestly, a 
accept that fact, except for Vijay and me, nobody has been gifted with the gift of teaching. It's a gift. I didn't earn it. I received it. I didn't earn it. I received. That's why God has put certain people in the kingdom of God to teach and didn't ask everybody to teach and actually asked people not to teach. That if you teach, you will be judged more strictly because you can cause error by your teaching. Many of us should not be teachers, just be witnesses. And even you witness and you testify of what God has done in your life, be very sure it matches doctrine. Sometimes testimonies don't match doctrine. Because the doctrine of Christ is the doctrine of a person. It's not an ideology. It's the doctrine. Marxism, like I said, can, can exist without Marx. It's an ideology. Doctrine of Christ cannot exist without Christ. It's the doctrine about a person. Like I said, everyone has doctrines. Because what you believe will ultimately define who you are. Even behind idols, there is a doctrine. In Jeremiah, this is what scripture says. They are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. An wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. It's a doctrine. There's a doctrine. Otherwise, all the idols will look the same. They don't look the same because there are different doctrines behind them. So be very watchful. Jesus says, be watchful, pray, watch and pray. Be watchful. What you receive, what you believe. It's a man of God who said, if there is a mist in the pulpit, there will be a fog in the pew. Let me repeat it again. If there is a mist in the pulpit, there will be a fog in the pew. You know? In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Scripture talks about the attitude of a new convert. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Everything has become new. It's a conscious mental effort daily to to accept and walk in that everything I learned and I heard and I understood before I came to Christ, I'm rejecting. I'm, I'm not accepting. The fact of the matter is, this is what I believe about myself. Without Christ, I cannot even understand the news in a newspaper. I cannot even read news. Because nothing is natural and normal. Everything is contaminated by the spiritual. Either by the demonic or God's. Everything is touched by that. That I cannot even understand news until I understand Christ. We cannot. We cannot read anything, understand anything. Because nothing is normal. Nothing is neutral. Everything is a shadow of something in the spiritual realm. So, irrespective of his age, he or she has to be ready to receive teaching in the new way of life. Okay? Anybody who comes to God must believe all the old things have passed away. I'm not bringing anything from all of my degrees. Everything I put away. I don't use... See, language is a skill. English is a skill. Greek is a skill. Language is a skill. I use language as a skill, as a tool to understand scripture. I don't bring my literature background to understand scripture. All that I put it away, as Paul said, as rubbish. It's worth nothing to understand this. 
This is a revelation of who God is. And if he doesn't reveal, we don't know him. And for him to reveal, he says, if a man wills to do his will. That's where it begins. And the first time I and you will to do his will is when we understood this is who we are, absolute reprobate sinners. And he died for us. We looked at us and we looked at him and we repented from our entire past. That's when we first submitted to his will. And that's when salvation became a reality for us. That's why in Hebrews, we don't have to go there, when it talks about the elementary, primary doctrines, the first doctrine is repentance from dead works. All works which are dead. Don't bring that in, God says. So you have a whole set of Jewish Christians now, putting aside the Judaism and all their teaching, and sitting at the feet of apostles, who the Sanhedrin will call unlearned men, to understand the doctrine of Christ. It's an incredible change. You here are the set of people taught in Judaism. They leave them and come to a set of fishermen who know the doctrine of Christ and they are being taught. So don't bring anything from your past. Don't try to use your past experiences outside of Christ and try to interpret anything that is happening because it will be false. So life for a new believer begins when he's born again. For a new believer, the difference between when I was born, when I was not born, born again, it's two difference. When I was born, I have, was born to life and I will move to death. When I was born again, I was born to death and I'm moving into life. Death of my old self and a new life in Christ. It's absolutely tangentially different. One, I was alive and I will die. The other is, I have to die. All things have passed away. I have to die so that I can be alive. That's why only those who were baptized, scripture says, on the day of Pentecost were taught doctrine. Because baptism is a symbol of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Only they could be taught doctrine. So, obviously, the caveat is all children, all babies are excluded from doctrine because they haven't died to self. So, either I am dead in my trespasses, or I am dead to my trespasses. You can't have both. Either I am Dead in my trespasses. Or I am dead to my trespasses. My sin. That's what Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but you he made alive. Who were? Dead. That's, we were dead. In Christ we were made alive. We were dead in what? In trespasses and sins. In which you once walked. You were dead, but you walked. This is dead men walking. It's not the movie. Dead men walking. All the people you see on the earth who do not have Christ in them are dead men walking. Walking in walk, walking in their trespasses and in their sins. According to the courts of this world, a dead world. According to the prince of the power of air who is already judged. And the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. His spirit is working in them. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, this is where the narrative changes, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, scripture says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's how it begins. The beginning of our salvation is in Christ. The end of our salvation also will be in Christ. It's a daily reality from death to life. I have to die to that old way of life and live in the new way of life. So the question, the other caveat is I'm using legal terms today because I was listening to a lot of news of <laughs> too many lawyers speaking about what is the, the what should the governor of Karnataka do. So caveats were being, okay. So, you know, therefore, if I am not saved, it does not matter what teaching I receive or who teaches me. The Pharisees were not saved. So it not did not matter that Jesus was teaching them. I am just decorating a dead body. The best clothes, the most expensive ornaments, and the finest food make no difference to a dead body. It cannot receive them. So the finest teacher, the finest doctrine of Christ is of no avail to a man or a woman who is not born again. He will receive with his head and forget it with his mind. It cannot bring life to him. Remember that. All this has meaning only to a spiritually living person. Why? Because that's how we began. The living word of God has effect only on a living person who has been birthed by the word of God. In James chapter 118, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God. The start was with the word. And if that start wasn't given by the word, it makes no difference. Let me give you another caveat. In First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he waters, but God gives the increase. Let's leave Paul aside and God aside and increase aside. Let's look at the logic or the reasoning with this scripture. Remember, if there is no seed in the ground, you can water as much as you want. Nothing is going to come out. Thing is going to come out. If there is not a seed that has germinated, the water is of no effect. It's of no effect. Paul can, Apollos can come and water as much as you want, but God can give no increase because there is no seed. You have not been born by the word. Not been born by the word. That is why. Because we have to take these things very seriously. It's literally in a life and death matter. Eternal life and eternal death matter. Because the word of God really. Because every time I go into these places. The stunning fact is to see that. Boy are they playing with their lives. Pastors are playing with their lives. No, because the word of God is real. Therefore it is very very important. That we have life from above inside. 
And it is not only enough that we have life. Scripture also says that life must grow. In First Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, As newborn babies, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's it. Now he's using all illustrations from natural to the spiritual. The natural fact of the matter is all of you, including me, I don't know about you, Mia, I'm hungry. I'm waiting to go home. Why? Because you have a natural body which causes hunger. When your stomach is empty, there is hunger. Scripture says if you are spiritually born again, even a baby, Tabitha's little baby is over there, he craves for milk. The milk of God's word. Scripture says, desire the pure milk of the word, not watered, not contaminated, the pure milk of the word of God that you may grow thereby. It's a natural effect of being born again. You will crave You will desire, you will crave for the word of God. And it doesn't matter when you're born again. It may be a good news Bible. That's enough. That's enough. You don't start with a KJV. I didn't start with a KJV. I started with good news. Okay? We need to understand. Babies can't understand KJV. Thou, thee, and they'll put it down. Okay? They need milk. You have to grow. And we have to keep on growing. In Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior proportionally. He's very, he's very balanced. Scripture is very, he says grow in grace. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Grow in knowledge. If you grow in knowledge without grace, one, you can handle this knowledge. Pride comes in or you will fall. So he says grow in grace and grow in knowledge. If you grow in grace without knowledge, you will go off track. Grow in knowledge, grow in grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we have to grow. It is not enough to be alive. It is imperative that we grow in the doctrine of Christ. This knowledge of our Lord and Savior is the doctrine of Christ. You need to know our Father. We need to know who God is, how He functions. This is a rule of creation, God's creation, a rule of nature. One of the rules of God's nature, God's creation nature is, nature will not accept a vacuum. You leave your husband, you leave your house empty for three months, you come back, something has moved in there, spiders, dust. You leave your garden just like that, you come back, weeds have overgrown. Nature will not accept a vacuum. You have to grow. If you do not, your old man will grow. You have to grow. If you do not, your old man will grow. In Ephesians 4.22 will tell you how the old man grows. Therefore put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt. It grows more and more and more corrupt. If, see, it's no, if you don't put off, you cannot put in. If you are not accepting the teaching of Christ and not there for the teaching of Christ, you don't know what to put off and what to put on. But the old man is growing more and more angry. People are growing more and more angry. Lustful people are growing more and more lustful. Still, thieves are becoming bigger and bigger thieves. Only they are covering it well. The old man is growing more and more corrupt. While the new man is being transformed, if the doctrine of Christ and the grace of God is there, he's being transformed in the image of God. Meaning the once upon a time angry man is becoming more and more and patient. 
Law more and more kind, more and more long suffering, more and more loving, because something is happening inside. One is being put off, the other is putting on, because nature will not accept a vacuum. That's why we are not, if you are not taking the word of God and changing within, you and I will definitely take the world and change within. It will not accept a vacuum. It will not. We were born by the word of God. We also grow by the word of God. That's why the call of God throughout in the Bible, my people shall live by faith, live by faith, live by faith, walk by faith. Or vishwas kahan se aate hai? Sunne se. Sunai kahan se aate hai? Vishwas se. Faith comes from? Hearing and hearing from the word of God. And God says walk by faith. When you walk by faith, you're walking by by the word of God. When you're walking by the word of God, you are actually walking. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It was a fight to keep the faith. It's a daily fight. You fight every day of your life to align your thinking and your life to the doctrine of Christ. It's a daily fight which you can, cannot afford to ignore. It's a daily fight. He says, I have fought the good fight and I have kept the faith. This walk by faith, walking in the doctrine of Christ. Remember, it's all over here. It's a spiritual battle. It's a constant battle. In Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 5, no, not 8, son. It's chapter 10, verses 4 to 6. Chapter 10, verses 4 to 6. Paul will say this. For the weapons of a warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. A stronghold is a false doctrine which has been established in your mind on which you function. What's a stronghold? A stronghold is a doctrine of man or a doctrine of demon. Remember, the demons are spiritual beings. They are spirit beings. When Adam was created, God breathed into him and he became a living soul. So the soul of man and the spirit of the demons, both are empowered by God. And when they two come together, they have incredible power. That's why men in occult seek the help from demons. Because it's a soul and the spirit coming together. But, scripture says, when you have a wrong doctrine in your mind, either of a man or a demon, it becomes a stronghold which has to be pulled down. He says, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. It's a battle. It's won or lost here. One thought. Every thought over time as we grow, the thoughts are being Brought to the control of the word of God. Otherwise we will read circumstances. Stuff that is happening in our lives. Using the doctrine of men. Which is established patterns. Or doctrine of demons. And react wrongly. And then we say Lord why are you not helping me? God says I don't. I can only do it my way. I can't do it your way. I can't do it your way. One thought. One thought. If you leave it alone. And follow its course can cause 
destruction. It can cause loss unless God intervenes and grants repentance. Repentance is changing from a wrong pattern of thinking, therefore which leads to action, to a new pattern of thinking and a new way of living. Repentance involves both. You cannot just change your action and continue to think that same way. You will go back to it. Repentance involves much more deeper than changing your action. It goes into changing the way you think. So repentance is changing the pattern of the way you thought and God says your actions will start changing. Because behind every action there is a thought. And we have seen this over and over again how one thought in a man of God or a woman of God can change or cause him to lose years of his life or his entire life. In First Samuel chapter 27, very often used example 27, David said in his heart, it was a thought. He didn't speak it out. It was a thought. Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. One day Saul is going to kill me. I'm tired running. I'm tired fighting this good fight. I'm tired. Let me take matter into my own. That's how people react. I'm tired of praying. I'm tired of going to church. Let me handle it my way. That's exactly what he's saying in our terms. Let me handle it my way. I cannot keep running in the wilderness and in the deserts and live in the caves. I'm going to do one thing. I'm going into the world. I'm going to do it in the world. I'm going into the Philistine territory. Anyway, he's not going to come there. And I'm going to have my peace. And scripture says, he went. It will literally cost him eight years and ten months of his life. And Sunday we will come back to that again, that on earth life has to be measured in terms of time. The most precious thing we have on earth is not gold or silver, it is time. It cost him one thought because he followed that thought, cost him ten years and eight months of his life. The first thing what happens is in 27 verse 7, he goes there and now the time David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one year, one full year and four months. How many is that? 16? 16 months. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 2 verses 10 to 11, you will see the other part. Ishobesheth, Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Put together, ten year, eight years and ten months. Why? Why didn't the rest of Israel not follow David in Hebron? Is because he spent 16 months in the Philistine camp. They refused to trust him. You and I go into the world and spend a long time doing things in the world and then say, I am sorry, I come back. To earn the trust back will take time. So your loss is not connected to the 16 months you lost. See, forgiveness is free. Trust is not. Trust has to be earned. David had to wait seven years and six months before he could earn the trust of all of Israel. So technically speaking, because of one thought, and when he followed it to his logical conclusion, it cost him eight years and ten months of his life. So we need to understand the power of a wrong thought. The power of a right thought. It is doctrine. Why I say this is because one of the primary weapons the enemy will use and always has used, and especially Jesus says in the last days, is going to be fear. 
Fear is going to be the primary weapon the enemy is going to use and has always used. In Luke 21 and verse 26, men's hearts failing from fear and the expectation of those things which are, which are coming. That's how David went. He was afraid of that coming. He said, if I go on like one day, Saul will catch me and he will kill me and I am finished. Fear got in and he followed that pathway of fear. And this can be at so many levels. Fear almost always is connected with loss. Fear of loss in this world or loss of life. Ultimately the life. That's why Jesus says, love not the world or the things of the world. So you're not worried about loss. He says, love not your life. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, the set of people who have overcome the devil, who those who ultimately, three factors are mentioned over there. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. What does it mean? It means they did not walk under condemnation. They knew their doctrine well. They knew if they had repented of a sin, none of the accusations of the devil matters. I am not under condemnation. They knew their doctrine well. Lord of Christians who have been forgiven do not know doctrine. They believe the lies of the world. They walk in depression, discouragement, contentment. Though they have repented, they keep repenting about the same sin. When the first time they genuinely repented, God has already forgiven and forgotten. But the devil keeps them under condemnation because they don't know doctrine. They want to have a physical experience. Lord, give me an ecstatic experience. Whisper in my ear, I am forgiven. God says nothing like that. My word is enough. If I have spoken, that's enough. So they walk under condemnation. How do you first first overcome him? By the blood of the lamb. Second, by the word of their testimony. When the word they speak aligns with the doctrine of Christ, with the word of God, he is defeated. But third, they did not love their lives to the death. They were not afraid to die. If you are afraid to die, you can never be a soldier. You will be in Indian Army Postal Service sealing letters all your life with the uniform. You cannot. So you remember the three factors. Because the devil, what he will try to do in the last days is create fear. And your fear should be should be real also. If your salvation is not real and you haven't heard from God, you have never repented and you don't see any signs of your life changing, don't be this gung-ho, if I die tomorrow I am going to heaven. You will be like the rich man in that parable, woke up in the wrong place. We have this term in English which is called Dutch courage. A lot of Christians have Dutch courage because their courage comes from false doctrines. And if you ask them where it is written, they don't know. They will say, my priest told me, my pastor told me, my prophet prophesied over me. That is not your confirmation. Your confirmation is this is written and I have believed and I have obeyed. That's my confirmation. I will not exalt anything in my life above the word of God. And if the word of God says it is true, it is true. And I'm not going to rely on my feelings and subject the word to my feelings. The word says I'm free, I'm free. My feelings don't have to tell me. I can be locked up in a prison in the midnight hour. My legs be locked up in the prison. But Christ says I am free. I am free. And if I am free, I will sing. That's what Paul and Silas does in the prison. They were free. Therefore, they sang. We have to understand how doctrine powerfully plays a role in how we react to our situations. So, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Yes and amen. But... Fear is one of the weapons the enemy uses against the promises of God. It was after he heard 
all that incredible promises of God, Abraham, when famine came in fear, told Sarah, please say you are not my wife. Just after that incredible experiences, Isaac tells Rebecca, please say that you are not my wife. It's after the anointing and incredible protection and provision of God that David goes into the Philistine camp. We'll always see this over and over again. What man, when a man believes he's capable of doing, fear the devil will try to come and cripple. And all the promises of God stand still. It is yes and amen. Only in the life of somebody who believes. Because in effect, faith has been replaced by fear. Been replaced by fear. We still got another 15-20 minutes, okay? 20 minutes maybe, 25 minutes. It's summer, it's vacation, AC is there. I may hold you back for some more time. If... My people in that mountainous country, where all of them told, they are never used to sitting for more than 40 minutes, could sit for 5 hours without moving, with a 10 minute break in between. 5 hours. You can do better. And that too, hearing me speak their language, 5 hours. Okay, not even Shuddha Nepali, their Nepali from a Malu mouth. Let's look at a promise, okay? Let's look at a promise. Here is the promise, incredible promise in First Kings chapter 11. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. He had clothed himself with a new garment and two were alone in the, in the field. Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jerome, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to you. Woo! Think about it. It's not like I will tear the kingdom out of... See, everything you have to read it carefully. If God were to say, I will tear the kingdom of Saul from you and give you... Saul's kingdom, he was fighting his enemies, losing and hiding all. This is Solomon. Solomon is a zenith of Israel's power and wealth and royalty, splendor. He says, Solomon's, I will divide it into twelve and give you ten. What a promise for a guy. He's not even part of the royal family. He's just an official. Okay. Unbelievable promise. First thing we need to understand. Why we bring these things is also apply it into normal terms. First, what we understand is the sovereignty of God. Earth and its fullness belongs to God. God puts rulers. He changes rulers. Rulers are not decided either by the ballot or the bullet. It's decided by God. And God has given his people to pray and intercede until they see a finality. We need to learn that.
Another battle is going on over there. Never cease praying. Never cease praying. Because even the other side comes into power. Don't sleep. Because these, the demons and the devil works in, he has no ethics. He has no righteousness. He will use every crooked way. And the only set of people who can block the powers of darkness is the church. Nobody else has power to block them. And the church is asleep. Because they don't understand spiritual realities of what is happening. Solomon, David was given the kingdom. David was given a promise. Solomon is the height of it. God says, so what? I look at him. It's gone away from my... I will do one thing. I'm going to take ten tribes, give it to you an official, two tribes to him for the sake of David. That's how I govern. The earth is mine. I choose whom I want. And I will look for people who will obey me, who will walk in me. He can give it to anyone whom he chooses. But he is not whimsical, okay? He's just not like any wind, okay? Why will he do that? Why does he do things? In verse 32 and 33, he shall have one try for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. David and Jerusalem, because, he says, why? They have forsaken me and worshipped Asherah, the goddesses of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. So it's a lesson to us, he says, if you don't handle the idolatry in your life, I will hand you over to the enemy. I will take what I gave it to you, which was rightfully yours. All the promises will have no effect in your life. I will take it away and give it to somebody who will at least walk in my way for a few years. It could be your bai, your housemate. I'll take it from you, the grace that was meant for you, and give it to her because she chose to follow me when you did not. God says, understand how my kingdom works. Every promise is connected to my righteousness. And if you don't seek my righteousness, seek my doctrine, and walk in that, I will find somebody who will. Who will. That's a righteousness. Verse 37 to 39. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. Wow. He's telling an official in Solomon's court, you know what? I don't differentiate between people. I don't look at outward. I look at every man, every man. I am fair, I am just. If you will do what David did, I will build a house for you as I will build a house for David. No difference. I am fair, I am just, I am righteous. And what he will say, and I afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. I'll always show mercy to one descendant down the line because of David. He was faithful. I'm sorry, I didn't show verse 40. In verse 40, scripture says about Solomon. What happens is Solomon gets to know about this. How? Like it's a White House. Everything leaks out of the White House. Ahijah meets uh, Jeroboam in the wilderness. Still the news leaked. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam must have whispered to somebody. That whisper, whisper, whisper reached the palace. And what did Solomon do? Sought to kill Jeroboam. What did Solomon try to do? Kill so what difference is between a carnal Saul who is chasing David, who has been chosen, and a wise Solomon who is chasing Jeroboam, who is chosen? Did you see at the end they become the same? Solomon is chasing Jeroboam. Understand, all these things of wisdom, power, glory and all makes no difference if we don't get doctrine right. That God owns everything, let his will be done in our life. 
Let his will be done in our home. Let his will be done over, over all the earth. So all the promises are yes and amen. But they are also dependent upon man's obedience to the ways of God. Let me tell you, one thought, one thought, let, left to its natural conclusion, can take away all the promises of God from your life. One thought, if you don't bring it in alignment to Christ. One thought. In First Kings chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, one thought. And Jeroboam said in his heart, what did he say? Jeroboam said in his heart. What you say in your heart is perfectly fine if it aligns with what God has spoken to you. Now what he's saying in his heart is exactly opposite to God's word. He says, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. Did God say that? He didn't say that. He says, you are faithful. You walk in my ways as David walked. I will build an enduring house for you. Now he's looking there and says, okay, I have become king now. Solomon is dead. The other fellow is God. Two tribes, I have ten, but the problem is, he's got Judah. I've got all the others. The problem is, Jerusalem is in Judah. And God has ordained a lot of stuff about why everybody should go to Jerusalem. Now he says, there is a problem. He is thinking in his carnal way, okay? Now the kingdom may return to the house of Judah. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of these people will return back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. One thought. One thought. Fear was instilled in his heart. Problem is when we fear, we forget what was told to us by God. What was told to us by God can be only kept by God can be only kept by God when you and I walk in faith. What did he do? In verse 28 it says, he did not seek God, he sought. Therefore the king asked advice. What did he do? He asked advice. That's what we do. We don't go to God. We don't go to godly people. We ask for advice. And what do people give? extremely wonderful, carnal, worldly advice. They said, according to Atmos, he says, he made two calves of gold. This is Israel. This is Judah. Hebron, Dan. Extreme. He says, put a golden calf here. Put a golden calf there. That's all. And tell people, why do you want to go to Jerusalem? It's so far away. You see that? So far away. He set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. What is the first thing the enemy does? Apply it, okay? Apply it. What is the first thing the enemy does? The first thing enemy does is change the focus of our faith from God to money. That's what most of the preaching today is about. It's not about God. It's not about sacrifice. It's not obedience unto death. It's about money and prosperity in this world. What did Jeroboam do? The first thing he said to the people, okay, I'll make a slight change over here. Let's turn our heart, minds, from focusing on this God and focusing on money, the golden calves. Slight alteration. When a man gets a thought in his head and he starts applying wrong doctrine, you will see what happens from God to money. Then what did he do in verse 9? 29. Yeah, let's go to verse 29. The same. Yeah. And he set up one in Bethel 
and the other I put in done. What did you do? What did you do? What did, what do we do? What we do is we change the worship, the service of God according to our convenience. So you don't have to go to Jerusalem. It's too far away. I'll make it convenient for you. Pick up your time of service. Pick up the place of your service. You don't have to go to a place where there is authentic worship and also where you will be cut to the high. No, 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 no. Pick one something very close to your house. God at your disposal. Not you at God's disposal. He changed the place of service. All remember one thought and this will last through the history of Israel until Josiah comes. But it's too late by then. A small revival, Israel goes into captivity. Where did it start? It started with one thought in one king's life when God had given him all the promises. The first thing he does is change the heart of people from God to money to prosperity, from sacrifice, from giving to getting. Can put it in different ways. Second, make it into a worship of convenience. First, he corrupts worship. Then he he made shrines on high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. What did he do next? What did he do next? He changed the order of God's priesthood. Old Testament and New Testament, it is said in in the New Testament, it talks about the Old Testament law. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, for he of whom... These things are spoken belongs to another tribe, that is Judah, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident our God arose, uh, arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke. Nothing concerns priesthood. Priesthood was for Levi. Priesthood was for? From Levi. What did he do? He changed the order of priesthood. He said, anybody can be a priest. Anybody can be a priest. Problem is Hosea 4, 6, God says, because you rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priest for me. The first, why did Levi become priest? Because they were willing to die for their God when Moses came down from the mountain. The criteria for being a priest for God was to put God above Everything else in your life. He compromised the, the, the standard for ministry. That's what you see. Any Christian publication, class 10 fail, please apply. We raised the standard down. We said anybody can come and teach and preach. No problem. Come. Come. Priesthood is a calling. The calling is based on a sacrifice. Go ask any priest, what did you leave? Ask Peter, what did you leave? Peter said, I left everything. Ask John, what did you leave? He said, I left everything. Paul said, I left everything and I considered it as rubbish. Understand spiritual principle. There were laws. The Old Testament, the letter. But these are spiritual principles in the Bible. Who can be priests? And when we change that, destruction slowly comes into the church, then into the nations. That's what we saw earlier. God says, many must not be teachers. So you have, he changed worship, focus of worship. He makes worship into a matter of convenience and he changes the priesthood. And he went even further than, sorry, keep on that chapter, okay? Further than any king of Israel or Judah. In verse 32, scripture says, 
of that same chapter. Got it? Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like a feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. Did you see that? Can you go to Leviticus 23-34? If you don't study, look at it carefully, we will not see. 15th day of the 8th month. Leviticus 23 and verse 34. 23, speak to the children of Israel, the 15th day of the 7th month. Which was the date? 15th day of the? He changed the date, even of the Feast of Tabernacles. No king ever dared to change the date of God's festivals. He even changed the date. He even changed, that's what the Antichrist will finally do. He will change the times and the laws. You have in Israel's history a type of the Antichrist who is sitting there and changing the focus of their worship from God to Mammon. When you worship Mammon, you always worship the devil. From the place God has chosen to a place of convenience. From the priesthood God has chosen to anybody wants you can get in. And then finally, he changed the times. One thought to a man who has given all the promises. One thought. Did you see that one thought? which will lead to the downfall of Israel, where God keeps on repeating over and over and over about the sin of Jeroboam. The sin of Jeroboam. Through the Bible, the sin of Jeroboam. How it corrupted the entire nation. He changed the object of worship from God to self. Place of service to a place of convenience. He said, you can choose. You're a priest. Anybody. Second Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 3, Jeroboam. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves. Yes, now they choose their teachers. That's what people do. Flip. God, flip. Suvartha, flip, 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 flip. I don't like him, he's too hard. Oh, he's also too hard. They choose their own teachers. Jeroboam is in ruling and reigning. We change the times and the seasons. And verse 33. Back to that. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month which he had devised in his own heart. Everything he planned it out in his own Heart. We know the other, what happens, right? How God wants him about the altar, the young prophet who comes, the hand that is withered, all that. We know the altar broke into two, the ashes, in spite of it all. You know what scripture says? In First Kings chapter 13, in spite of seeing the hand of God, the hand of judgment, the hand of power, scripture says, after this event, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way. God could do whatever he wanted. A miracle, first his hand was withered, the hand was straightened, nothing. But again he made priests from every class. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. See? He killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah. God said, I will destroy his house. Nobody will be left. 
you see, you can destroy the family of Jeroboam. You cannot easily destroy the doctrine he has brought. Jeroboam and his family are all dead. But scripture says in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 33, In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha the king of Ahijah, became king over all Israel in Tirzah, reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin. Can destroy a man and his own family. But the doctrine he has taught can live after him. Marx is dead and gone. Marxism still kills people. It still kills people. First Kings chapter 16 verse 23. In the third year of Asa of Judah, Omri became king over Israel. Reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. And what is written about him in the next verses? Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. Why? For he walked in all the words of Jeroboam. He set a doctrine and they're all walking in that doctrine. He's dead and gone. His family is gone. And the next one. When it comes to Ahab, now we are coming to Ahab. When Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Why is it happening that way? Because that's the nature of a destructive doctrine or a righteous doctrine. The righteous doctrine will grow stronger and stronger and stronger as it goes down. Those who receive it wholeheartedly. The evil doctrine will also grow stronger and stronger in those who receive it. That's why God says in the last days it will be terrible times. It's because of the doctrine people believe. And it came to pass as though it was a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins. When it came to Ahab, he didn't even bother. It's a small thing. He sinned. So others at least had maybe some fear. This fellow had no fear also. On top of that, he went to the other extreme and took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethabal, the king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. It's getting more and more and more. You see that? And First Kings chapter 22, verses 51 and 52, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel. In Samaria, in 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. When it comes to doctrine, God will go back to the origin. This is the fellow who gave that doctrine. Second Kings chapter 3. Verses 1 to 3. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, and reigned, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, his father and mother. He's a little good. But, nevertheless, he persisted in the sin of Jehoram. That is one thing they could not escape. They all fell to that false doctrine. See, Jehu was... Are you with me? Can I take 10 minutes and finish this off? Jehu was specifically anointed for a purpose. You know Jehu? In First Kings, when Elijah comes down from the mountain, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazel as king of Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Elisha, the son of Zaphath, of Abel, Meholah, as your anoint as prophet in your place. Why? Verse 17, it shall be that whoever escaped the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. We know it was Jehu who kills Ahab and Jezebel and all of that. In 2 Kings chapter 10 verses 28 and 29, Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sense of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel. You see the 
power of a destructive doctrine. Even Jehu has been specifically anointed for a purpose. He's not able to break the doctrine. He's not able to break. That is from the golden calves that were there at Bethel and Dan. Even Jehu failed. Even Jehu failed. Verse 30 and 31, you know what God tells Jehu? And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. You know what? Because he did this, God said something. We'll have only four generations on the throne. I will not build a house for you. You know what that is? It's Exodus 20 verse 4. God sticks to his word. We need to, why we look at it, it says God will never change his word for anybody. You shall not make for yourself a carved image like any likeness that is heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And shall we have the next verse? It says you shall not you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those. He said, I'll visit up to the fourth. And up to the fourth, if I see idolatry is continuing and they don't change. He's talking to believers. He says, I'll cut them off. He looks at Jehu, God who sees the end from the beginning. You've been so wonderful. You did almost everything I told you, but one thing you haven't done. You haven't got away from the idolatry of Jeroboam. Therefore, will last four generations. Your children, up to the fourth generation. Second Kings chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. In the 37th year of Jehoash, king of Judah, in the 20th year of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel. Reigned 17 years, he did evil, followed the sins of Jeroboam. Who is this? Jehu's son. The next one, Second Kings 13. The next, in the 37th year of Jehoash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoash, became, who is this? Jehoash, grandson. Became king over Israel in Samaria, reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Okay, this is the grandson. Two generations. 14 verses 23-24. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Jehoash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king. This is the third generation. Became king in Samaria, reigned how many years? 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. Now the fourth generation. Who is the fourth one? 15 verses 8 to 9. In the 30th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zachariah, the son of Jeroboam. Okay? This is the fourth generation after Jehoram. Sinned of Samaria, six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Four generations are over. Verses 10 and 12. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him, struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. God said, out. Just picked a common guy, killed the fourth one in front of the people, and said, your four generations are over. You did not change. What I spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai will come to pass in every one of your lives. I will not tolerate the sin of Jeroboam. It's a heresy. It's a doctrine that brings destruction. That's why we see the importance of doctrine. God is just. God has to be righteous. 
And we have to fall in line with God and his ways. And he will always uphold his righteousness. And only the line of David will survive. In the same way, please remember, in us, among us, only the line of Christ will survive. Christ in us. That's why we don't get all flustered by all that is happening. We stand steadfast on what we know is true. And we keep building on it. So watch your doctrine. Watch your life. If there is a mist in the pulpit, there will be a fog in the pew. Remember what I said in the beginning. If there is a mist in the pulpit, if there is a mist that covers here, you will be covered by a fog. So God says, be careful. Everyone who teaches, get your doctrine right. And tells Timothy, work hard, work hard, work hard, that you correctly divide the word of God. Because we see in the power of a destructive one doctrine, we started as one thought, how it destroys a nation. Man, let's pray. Father, we just come to you, Lord. We just thank you. We just praise you. We just worship you, Lord. As a church, we are here, Lord, on the 25th day of our fasting. We are just asking you to cleanse not only our physical bodies, but also our minds of every doctrine we may have received which is not true, which does not align with your word. We want to test everything, Lord, with the word of God. We want to be very sure what we accept in our lives is approved by God. Because of Father, we are not seeking to establish our own kingdom. We are seeking to establish your kingdom in our lives. So once again, we pray, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. It's not ours. Our bodies are at your disposal, however weak it may be. It is yours and for you and you alone. For your word says the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our minds are yours. Help us not to conform our mind to the pattern of this world, but to renew it according to your word. Help us to humble ourselves always under your hand. For you said you will lift us up in due season. Come and surrender before your word and before your spirit once again, Lord. Continue to minister us through this day, through this week. Thank you, thank you, Father. You brought us safely. We commit ourselves into the hands that you will reach us home safely. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.